this yes. is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and the end of the world that we have all been facing for some time is the world ending with viruses, deadly diseases that have moved on from only being epidemic, a disease that affects a large number of people within a community, population, or a region, to becoming pandemic. That is an epidemic that's spread over multiple countries or continents, both of which can begin with the disease being endemic, which is something that belongs to a particular people or country. But whatever stage the disease and its transmission and spread happen to be in, researchers have been trying to determine their origins for a very, very long time. This didn't start just with COVID-19. But at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, some were saying that we were all epidemiologists now, that we all suddenly became health issue investigators with our own theories and how exactly a virus was in, unleashed upon us that was infecting millions and leading to countless, literally countless deaths as a partisan issue in the United States. And keep in mind, it is not a partisan issue everywhere in the world. It is in other countries like Canada, but not everywhere. And places like Britain find it odd that it would be any kind of partisan debate. One party decided COVID-19 originated in a live market in China, spreading from animals to human beings, which makes the disease seem like an isolated incident or event, a fluke, which had the added benefit of being bolstered by really ugly stereotypes about Chinese culture. The other party insists that the virus was made in a Chinese lab, which did exactly what they always wanted, fueling hatred toward the other. But what if both are wrong? And worse yet, short-sighted, especially if we actually want to protect ourselves from the next outbreak that can spread easily via globalization. What if both what if both parties miss the forest for the trees and that the real bigger issue is something neither party wants to dis discuss or address, and that is deforestation and the global poverty, the global poverty that drives it. You might be saying, yeah, but the Department of Energy this week said it likely, you know, the COVID-19 likely came from a Chinese lab. Well, they had low confidence in that report, so let me ask you, if you were seeing a doctor and they told you they had low confidence in their ability to do a simple procedure on you, like an appendicitis, or, or on you or a loved one, would you reply, that's good enough for me, or would you get a second opinion? And even if the virus came from a lab in China, there's the problem today's guest points out of U.S. collaboration with researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China on risky experiments that manipulated coronaviruses to gauge their spillover potential using a grant from... The National Institutes of Health, which eliminates the possibility that China, that China was being malevolent or the people working in that lab were, unless they were working with the U.S. to create a virus that both nations intended to kill millions. And all those conspiracy theories out, conspiracy theorists out there, you start working on that. Start whiteboarding that theory for me. We will do our best to learn about the origin of the next virus to force us to do many of the same things we did at the beginning of the current pandemic in a few minutes when we will be speaking with Caroline Chen, who is the lead reporter on the ProPublica series, On the Edge, the next deadly pandemic is just a forest clearing away but we're not even trying to prevent it. Caroline covers health care for ProPublica. 
She has written about public health, hospitals, drug makers, and clinical trials, highlighting disparities in patient access, broken funding models, and abuses of power. You can read the series at ProPublica.org and follow Caroline on Twitter at Caroline Y.L. Chen and join her on Mastodon at Caroline Chen at Mastodon.social. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far? It's been pretty good, Chuck. Thanks for asking. You know, I got up to the Montrose Point Bird Sanctuary. Oh, really? You ever get up there? Yeah, I've been over there before. It used to be a Nike missile site. Well, this is a lot better than that. I didn't know that. (laughs) They got a whole mess of birds there now. I saw blackbirds, brown birds. You ever see them? I I saw a duck. It looked right at me, Chuck. <laughs> really? <laughs> sent a thrill up my spine. My chakras were lighting up. I had a uh, Canada geese really uh, front up on me the other day, really chested at me up. Oh, just yeah, they it. square up. Oh, it's man. the worst. <laughs> it's bad news, and I, I've been chased by them before. They really, yeah. you can always tell the one who's in charge. It's always the one that's not looking at the other geese. He's looking, or he or she is looking straight at you. It's that's pretty right. scary. It's yeah. Pretty- yeah, I got to get out there. My girlie's really into, who knew that the pandemic would lead to so many people doing bird watching, but yeah. my girlie has a feeder right outside her back window. Wow. We had a uh, uh, juvenile red-tailed hawk land on the porch the other day. Wow, uh, that's, we, that's hot stuff. Yeah, some woodpeckers, but mostly it's those invasive sparrows who she absolutely loathes. Yes, I didn't. I was with a birder. I'm just a guy, but the birder was telling me which birds to hate and which ones to love. I was like, they all seem fine to me. Have you ever heard of the story of uh, the guy who released like 70 different kinds of birds, breeds of birds in Central Park because there were birds that were mentioned in Shakespeare and he wanted all the birds that were in Shakespeare to be in Central Park, which led <laughs> to all sorts of invasive species. He's an eccentric cat. They got an owl up there now. There's no a kidding. famous owl in the Central Park zoo it escaped oh yeah that's right yeah it's got a name like flacco or something yeah over that you're right it is flacco and uh uh, which i wouldn't have remembered and uh over in like edgebrook uh forest glen the um parks out on the kind of west side over by uh o'hare there are uh bald eagles holy wow which is really crazy it's really weird when you actually see a bald eagle uh anybody over there with you is will joining you today no, it's just me yeah. as far as I know. Okay. Oh, he popped out from under. No, it's just me. <laughs> so right now, for me at this very moment, I am in extreme back pain. A back pain that started with an on-the-job injury decades ago that flares up every so often. In fact, according to memories that were shared with me on social media, two years ago this week I had to miss several shows because my back went out and I could not walk the one block from my home to the studio, which is located above a pool table in a bar. And according to those same memories, that back pain returned just prior to me being hospitalized last year for over two weeks with a horrible infection, which led doctors to give me a 60-40 chance of survival. Those two weeks in incredibly uncomfortable hospital beds. Hospitals have the worst beds and the worst food because for some reason hospitals in the United States are incredibly inhospitable again during my hospitalization my back pain sparked again which has not gone away since leaving the hospital last spring the surgery I needed to survive then led to a hernia which again is causing me significant non-stop back pain which in turn means a loss of sleep and I can't have that hernia surgery for another three months because I had been sedated and put under so many times last year 
that they think it's dangerous for me to be put under again, and I will have to be for a hernia operation. But Dan, more important than my own personal hell of intense back pain, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? Well, this week's question from hell is, what are you giving up for Lent? <laughs> I would like to give up back pain. Yeah, that sounds real good. I don't know if I can do that. They'll though. probably shoot you up with, some, with something that would take care of that. I always get these people who say, have you read Dr. Sarno's book on uh, back pain? It's all in your mind. It's all in your mind. And I'm like, what? well, it is all. It, there, a lot of times back pain That's can be That's where it all mind. happens anyway. Exactly. Everything's in your mind. <laughs> I know, exactly. But I actually had a back injury. So yeah. the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter toque, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see how to show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, this is absolutely true. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. If you are a Patreon patron, you can put it, you can respond to the question from hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's moment of truth? Well, this week, Jeff's going to advocate for the condemned. Sweet. We've, yeah. We finally have an advocate. Yeah. Isn't that great? Who needs it more? <laughs> exactly. Coming up, the next pandemic and where it's coming from, Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering his moment of truth, and we will tell you what's happening next week here on the show. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, which still makes absolutely no sense to me. This is hell. The current debate, especially in the United States, over the origins of the current pandemic has become heavily politicized and partisan. However, those origins can be traced back to a previous epidemic, the deadliest outbreak of Ebola in the history of the world, which took place back in 2013. Here to tell us what was learned from that outbreak and what it could reveal about COVID-19's origins, Caroline Chen is the lead reporter on the ProPublica series, On the Edge, The Next Deadly Pandemic is Just a Forest Clearing Away, but we've not even tried, we're not even trying to prevent it. Caroline, welcome to the show. This is absolutely fantastic work. Thank you so much for uh, the writing that you have done, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me. You write that generations ago, families fleeing tribal violence. I think this is a great setup for the entire story. Families uh, fleeing tribal violence in southern Guinea settled in a lush, humid forest. They took solace among the trees which offered cover from intruders and carved a life out of the land. Their descendants called Meliandu which elders there say comes from words in the Kisi language, which is spoken in Guinea and Sierra Leone in West Africa, that mean this is as far as we go. By 2013, a village had bloomed where trees once stood, 31 homes surrounded by a ring of forest and footpaths that led to pockets residents had cleared to plant rice. Their children played in a hollowed-out tree that was home to a large colony of bats, 
nobody knows exactly how it happened, but a virus that once lived inside a bat found its way into the cells of a toddler named Emil Owamano. It was Ebola, which invades on multiple fronts, the immune system, the liver, the lining of vessels that keep blood from leaking into the body. Emil ran a high fever and passed stool blackened with blood as his body tried to defend against the attack. A few days later, Emil was dead. How well known among virologists and epidemiologists is this origin story for Ebola, that it came from bats? And was the World Health Community, if you will, uh, warning the world of the potential for deadly viruses that could become pandemic originating in bats? Because what I at least remember from the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, making uh, landfall here in the United States, is that everybody seemed to be surprised that bats would be the thing that was infecting people and leading to the COVID-19 outbreak. So how well known was it amongst those in the field that bats could be carriers for an epidemic, if not a pandemic? Um, I think it would be very well known among people who are in infectious disease that bats um, would be potential carriers of many of the viruses that have plagued us. And in fact, so Ebola is a special case because it's been really hard to pin down and capture live Ebola virus in a bat, which is the gold standard. But the, uh, scientists have found sort of cousin viruses, um, viruses in the family of Ebola in bats. Um, and so it's sort of generally believed that Ebola's uh, primary host species. So this is what we call a reservoir host, the the host animal that a virus can happily hang out in and not do damage to are bats. We also know that bats are carriers of coronaviruses of all sorts. We're all familiar with that now. And um, another group of viruses called Hanipa viruses, which are responsible for the Nipah virus um, and the Hendra virus, which affects humans. And generally, I think the thing that's well known is that a vast number of the really scary diseases that have affected humans originated from wildlife. Um, typically, that is rats, bats, and primates are the are the host species that uh, are most common. Um, and that is what I was interested in looking at for this story. And you write that Emil was patient zero in the worst Ebola outbreak the world has ever seen. The virus infiltrated 10 countries, infected 28,600 people, and killed more than 11,300. In 2013, the worst Ebola outbreak the world had ever seen took place. CNN reported on March 31, 2014, as the outbreak continued, that Doctors Without Borders warned the spread of the epidemic is unprecedented, adding that it was concerning because past outbreaks were contained and involved more remote locations. The geography of the outbreak is worrisome, they said, because it will greatly complicate the tasks of the organizations working to control the epidemic. A World Health Organization spokesperson at the time said that while the Ebola outbreak is serious, it is relatively small still, despite the outbreak being relatively small, according to the WHO. How likely is it that an outbreak like the 2013 Ebola outbreak could become pandemic in a world that has been globalized? Yeah. So let me take you back a little bit, actually, to why I started working on on this is actually a series of stories. So 
like every other health reporter on the planet, I've been covering COVID for, you know, starting from early 2020. And I was like, I'm very tired of covering COVID um, itself. And to be very clear, I have not um, gotten into the specific debate about the origins of this COVID-19 pandemic. I don't think there's enough information for the amount of certainty that there is in the debate. But that's 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 an aside. But I was curious about the question of what should we expect next? Like, should we expect another pandemic in our lifetime? Um, how often are these outbreaks happening? Are they happening more frequently? Basically, what should I expect after this pandemic? Is it truly a one-off? And as I was looking into that question and doing research, one thing that came up a lot when I talked to experts is what you said, there's increased globalization. So, you know, a moment of spillover when a virus jumps from an animal to human can happen at any time. But if that happens somewhere that's extremely remote and unconnected, it's much less likely to spread. However, as we all know, this world is becoming increasingly well-connected. Um, you know, both at a regional and country level. Uh, when I visited Guinea, like there was roadworks happening everywhere we went. Um, so the ability of someone to get from a village to a major city is becoming easier and easier. And then globally, as we all know as well, you know, it's very easy for someone to hop on a plane and be around the world by the next day. And so the chance that a spillover turns into a big outbreak is higher now than it was before. So what do you think causes us to, okay, we want to have globalization. We want to have economic development, if you will. We want that to spread. Why don't we recognize that when we are building these roadways, that we, when we are connecting the world, it doesn't just connect the positive aspects of the world around us, our environment around us. It can actually connect us to things like disease. So what keeps us from recognizing that kind of connection through globalization? I think many people in the infectious disease world definitely recognize it and, and sort of note that this is something that we have to take seriously and be prepared for. Um, I do think, you know, it's to some degree, it's inevitable. This is something that we're not, you know, there's so many benefits to being connected globally that nobody's going to rewind that because they're like, well, what if there is uh, a spillover event. I don't think that's ever going to be enough reason. But I think the question is, do we recognize this reality and take it seriously and prepare for it? So how accurately can we predict where epidemics will start and what viruses will become epidemic? How difficult is it to prevent them from sparking? Because the media repeatedly to told us that Nobody saw the COVID-19 pandemic coming, <laughs> leaving us with the feeling that this could happen anywhere at any time, and there's nothing we can do about it but wait. So how accurately can we predict the origin of the next pandemic and potentially stopping it from spreading? How much ability do we have in that field? Yeah, so this is such a such a good question. So I do think that the first half of what you said, this could happen anytime, anywhere, there is definitely a truth to that, right? There is so many... Um, there's so many viruses that are harbored in wildlife that you know have the potential to jump species. Uh, there are ones that we already well know about that continue to change and mutate, like the bird flu. Like we, that's a known threat, but we're seeing it spill over into all sorts of different mammals that we haven't seen before. Um, that could happen, you know, quote unquote, anytime, anywhere. Um, but 
is it something that we totally are blind to and we can't predict? I That is not true. And so I was looking into the drivers of spillover. What is it that causes um, there to be a higher chance of a virus jumping from an animal to human? And what I focused on in this story was the finding that in fact, deforestation and what they call land use change, so conversion, for example, of a forest into farmland, is one of the most risky drivers of outbreaks starting. And this is something that is well established in science, that there have been many, many cases showing how when we disturb the natural habitat, this increases the chances that wildlife will come into contact with humans. And furthermore, in some disease systems, that have been very carefully studied, scientists have found that you know when you really stress out some animals like bats, they may be more likely to shed viruses that normally they might not be shedding at such a high rate, but because we've sort of raised down their homes and forced them to find new homes in that stress condition, they're not only coming closer to humans, but they're shedding more virus. So I think this, when I read this, I was like, man, you know, I think so many people think that Either it's totally mysterious and we can't predict it, or mainly think about circumstances of, you know, animals being in markets. Um, that is where these outbreaks start, and it's you know, market and the wild animal trade is definitely another um, pathway via which uh, an outbreak can start. But I think this this idea of how we change the environment and how that's affecting the health of the planet, the health of animals, the, our own health is one that is underappreciated. And the question I'm trying to ask in this story that I wrote is, what are we going to do about this? Like the science is there. What is the world going to do about this information? The science and the threat is there. Yes. Yet, despite it being discussed on our show since March 2020, deforestation does not seem to be one of the popular theories on viruses that can become epidemic or even pandemic. The dueling partisan theories are that it came from a live so-called wet market in China, while the other side is saying it came from a Wuhan lab, implying that it was some sort of biological weapon China unleashed on the world, that the outbreak was not only malevolent, but intentional. To you, first, what explains why deforestation is not part of that partisan debate? Why would both sides avoid discussion about the role deforestation has played? Well, I actually think, and again, let me just state very clearly, I have no answers to the origin of COVID-19 because I have not directly reported on this. And I think there's a lack of information for us to be able to have clarity at this point in time. So I'll just put that up front. Right. But I'm just, but, I'm just asking about, you know, how partisan yeah, politics but, can undermine that discussion. But I think it's a lack of desire to look one step behind that. Right. So, you know, if this, if we follow the theory of this is of a natural origin, the initial jump from an animal to human happened in the market, we might back up and say, well, why did that animal have that virus in the first place. Like, I think we know at this point that bats are the reservoir host for coronaviruses in general. Uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that, you know, they weren't selling bats at that market. So there must have been an intermediate animal. So my question is, how did that animal, that intermediate animal, potentially have come in contact with bats? Like, I think the idea of land use change and deforestation is you know, taking it one step back from the immediate point of contact and asking, well, how did those animals get infected in the first place? How did they get close enough to humans in the first place? Why were they shedding virus? You know, and I think people don't 
want or don't have the patience to look at these much bigger, long-term, deep forces that are driving, um, that are creating sort of the conditions that are most risky. It's like, we don't wanna look at climate change, right? Because uh, it's hard and it's big and we feel like we can't stop it. But how is climate, you know, this is another area of research in this field, which is how is climate change making animals move? How is that affecting their habitat? How does that potentially affect the chances of spillover? Um, you know, even if you were to go with the lab leak theory, I think, again, there's no dispute that, the you know, it still would have originated in bats and that, you know, those researchers were looking at bat coronaviruses. So I think I am interested in the, the, the first step, basically, which is, you know, if we know that a lot of these um, pathogens are harbored in animals like bats, how did they get there? How do we prevent them from jumping to us? And sorry, I'm just going to pause and say very quickly here, the answer is not get rid of all the bats. Uh, because they are very, very important animals in uh, the the ecosystem, both for pollination of things like all sorts of fruit seeds and uh, eating mosquitoes and things like that. So I, I think it's natural to be like, bats are scary, let's get rid of bats. But I just want to say that's not the solution here. That's a really good point that you made, though, about uh, that backing up and looking at the bigger issue or the systemic problem, whatever it's in, as you pointed out, in climate change or whatever. That is that is a very difficult and that makes it uh, you know more of a challenge for people to wrap their mind around. I think that's a really interesting point. You also write when it comes to, well, let's get to the Ebola outbreak, researchers considered more than 100 variables that could contribute to an Ebola outbreak and found that the ones that began in Meliandu and six other locations in Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo were best explained by forest loss in the two years leading up to the first cases. It is now clear these landscapes were tinderboxes for the spillover of a deadly virus. We wondered what the world had done to keep disaster from striking again. Had global health leaders channeled money into stopping tree loss or deployed experts to help communities learn how to sustain themselves without cutting down the forest? Do the people in small remote areas, in this example, Meliandu, do they have a choice when it comes to deforestation? Is the only way for them to make a living, for them to su survive through deforestation, and is that incentivized by outsiders, or is this just something that they are choosing to do? I'm so glad you asked this question, because I would hate for any uh, listeners' takeaway to be well, people should just stop cutting down trees because it's not that simple. Um, when I visited Meliandu, uh, the folks there are subsistence farmers. So they need to be farming to survive. It's not only how they feed themselves, it's how they pay for things like medications with any excess crops they have. Um, sometimes they also will burn trees for charcoal to sell. That's pretty common in many places in the world as a source of income. And really it's not their choice. Um, when I talked to a lot of the elders there, they said they missed the extensive forest that they remember from their childhood. Um, and they they missed that lushness and the biodiversity that they saw, but they don't really have a choice because in part, they don't have the equipment and the tools to be able to farm very efficiently. And so, you know, they mainly grow rice on the slopes around the village. 
as that soil degrades and erodes, they don't have the ability to do things like rotate cover crops to enrich the soil for the next season. They don't have, you know, year on year, some years they're able to buy some fertilizer, some years if the harvest is bad, they can't buy fertilizer for the next year. So what what do they do if they need more food to eat? They'll just cut down more trees so they have more farmland. Um, this is absolutely something that they are forced to do, and it's a matter of survival. You know, uh, Caroline, this reminds me of back in the late 90s, we were covering uh, the new nation of Nunavut in Canada and the indigenous people of Nunavut were being forced to stop from their practice of harvesting seals, baby seals, through clubbing. World Wildlife Fund came in and forced the end of that practice. But as we talked to Jim Bell back then of the Ilkaluit News, uh, he said that led to an economic collapse and many f- uh, former hunters turning to substance abuse, and in particular, huffing kerosene. So I'm just concerned, wow. you know, that the exact same thing would happen here. People think they, from the outside they see something horrible happening, and then they, they impo- impose something upon the locals that is devastating to their lives. Why do you think that that step isn't recognized? Why do you think, you know, uh, we don't recognize, again, this? I guess this is the stepping back thing that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. that we don't recognize why the deforestation is happening. I think it's because it, it feels really hard, right? And no, and it's much easier. Um, I was talking to a lot of people who are in the public health field about how we respond after pandemics and where the money tends to go and this idea that funders like to have countable wins, right, kept coming up, which is like, well, you know, whether it's a big foundation or a government, it's really more satisfying to be able to say, hey, we made a vaccine in, you know, whatever it is, 12 months, 14 months for this, you know, that's a tangible win. Or we were able to distribute X number of malaria nets or put however many um, new machines in a lab and in Uganda, like that feels very tangible. The challenge with the notion of us changing the land and how that puts us as threat is that this is a long-term, as you said, sort of like a systemic force that's happening. And for somebody to say like, well, we reforested or we managed to work with locals to reduce deforestation. And we think that could have prevented a spillover from happening, you're trying to prove a negative. It's really hard for you to say, like, we know that because we stopped deforestation here, you know, an outbreak definitely didn't happen. So that's like a a huge challenge for people who want to work in this space to present to potential funders and say, this is worth it. You also point out that you found that the same dangerous pattern of deforestation had increased around Miliandu in the past decade, putting its residents at a greater risk of an Ebola spillover than they faced in 2013 when the disease first ravaged the village. So the exact same conditions seem to still exist. Things are back to normal in Miliandu. When a viral outbreak takes place, becomes epidemic, even pandemic, and the world longs for the time before the deadly outbreak, it's understandable that we may become nostalgic for an earlier time when the virus did not exist. To you, what explains the disconnect between the causes of an outbreak and the conditions that were normal? Why do we not hold normal practices accountable and do what we can to change moving forward, but instead we do everything we can to replicate the practices and conditions that existed when the outbreak happened in the first place. When an outbreak happens during normal times, 
Why do we not recognize that normal can be a contributing factor in an epidemic or pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot going on there. So let me just, first of all, I want to shout out my colleagues, Alshaw and Irina Huang, who did this modeling work. So we had found through our research, we met some academics. Uh, there was a team that was led by a scientist called Christina Faust at the University of Glasgow that made a model, a theoretical model that sort of you can calculate how much deforestation is contributing to the risk of an outbreak starting. And so what my colleagues did was take you know, satellite imagery um, and analyze that to see what had happened in Miliandu and in a number of other Ebola outbreak places since 2013. And things have just gotten worse. That's what we found that the, the sort of patchy, dangerous deforestation that would enc encourage opportunities for wildlife and humans to meet has just gotten worse since 2013. So actually, I would say it's not even the same. It's it's worse than it was when when that outbreak started. But your question of like, why don't people do something about this? Basically, I think I think there's a notion in 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 public health circles, which is helpful to think about, which is called the cycle of panic and neglect. So every time something bad happens, let's say, you know, there's there's like Zika or there's Ebola, we panic right after that happens. And everybody's like, oh, no, we've got to do something. We can't do this again. They convene a lot of experts to write recommendations. And then we go into the neglect part of the cycle, which is when you know the case counts come down and people are fatigued and don't want to think about it anymore. And there are other pressing worries happening, whatever it is, economics, war, that people just stop paying attention when it's not right in front of them. So and we see this happening over and over again on small and large scales across the world. Every time there's a public health emergency, people panic and they're like, what can we do? And then they kind of just let it go. Um, so I think that has been a dynamic that's been at play here. Um, I think the other thing that we found in our reporting is that people often talk about pandemic, what they call prevention, preparedness, and response. Response is after everything's ready, you know, broken out, we have a full-scale emergency, things like how do we send the teams of doctors in to try to contain it, or how do we, you know, develop a vaccine very quickly? Preparedness, I think of as, you know, do we have surveillance? Are we watching for the first case? Do we have enough healthcare workers on the ground? And there's then there's prevention. And what we found is that the world tends to pay more attention and put more money into preparedness and response than true prevention. And partly this is because people think that it's really hard to actually prevent that first spark from happening from, you know, that patient zero because of these large dynamics. And so that has been a sort of traditional bias in public health, which is we're going to focus on being ready to put out the fire after it has started rather than can we stop that spark from happening in the first place? And panic or neglect don't seem to be good conditions to be in when making decisions based on, uh, on public no. health. Uh, you write, it takes a half hour to walk from the homes of Miliandu through the forest to the denuded mountainside where each family is assigned a plot of land to farm. The cacophony of village life gives way to the hum of insects as residents trek up the dirt path, some balancing basins of water on their heads. That's what I'm saying. This is just beautiful writing. Not even the children are exempt from the work it takes to clear the ground for planting. Goes on from dawn to dusk every day, but Sunday heedless of the heat. You know you're close to the farms when you start to hear the sound of metal striking the earth. 
So can this kind of normalization of deforestation, including children from a very young age participating in deforestation, can that be undone? Is a culture around deforestation being developed? Because as we have seen with those who are involved in, say, coal mining, they fear for a loss of lifestyle, a loss of culture, and a sense of a loss of a sense of community. What can be done to end the normalization of deforestation that can lead to viral outbreaks which become epidemic, if not pandemic, including introducing children into that culture? I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser for my next story because I do think the question of what we can do is really important and I don't want to leave readers or listeners feeling like, well, here's another huge intractable problem. So I do have a story coming out soon about a small nonprofit that is showing us how we can do this. Um, That's what I'll say for now. Um, It will hopefully be out soon. But I think broadly, um, what needs to be done is to look at this holistically. As you said, there can be unintended consequences when you tell people don't do X and just don't take into account the fact that they may be doing a certain action for survival, right? I think there is, uh, I think, so to really address, you know, what, for example, is happening at Meliandu, somebody would need to really consider, are there ways to help them farm more efficiently so they don't have to resort to cutting down trees? What is the support that they actually need there? Um, And then I think that there's the other end of the scale, which is sort of large corporate-driven, deforestation from things like mining. I mean, that's another issue in Guinea, which I didn't get into, but the country's um, economy relies heavily on mining. And obviously that has caused a ton of deforestation. So I think there are several levels of, of action that need to be addressed, but particularly when you start thinking about um, individual communities, you can't bring about um, meaningful change and safe change without being engaged with the community, asking them what they need, and sort of working with their realities. We are speaking with Caroline Chen. She is the lead reporter on the ProPublica series On the Edge. The next deadly pandemic is just a forest clearing away, but we're not even trying to prevent it. You can read the series at ProPublica.org. And as she was saying, there's going to be a new piece out shortly. Follow Caroline on Twitter at Caroline Y.L. Chen to make sure that you do not miss the next article in the series. And join her on Mastodon at Caroline Chen at Mastodon.social. So the the way in which you describe what they are farming, these rice paddies, you just write that these are not the terrorist rice paddies of that rise like stairs for giants in postcards and from Asia. Farming here is very time-consuming and difficult with steep slopes prone to erosion. So can we, I I always hate asking this question because I always know the answer, can we as consumers simply not buy rice from Guinea? And if that is even possible, would it fix the problem of viral outbreak or would it cause additional suffering for the people of Meliandu? Yeah, I think this is the sort of thing where you have to be careful about unintended consequences, right? Because I specifically for this village, they're not selling to the international community. They're selling to, you know, the 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 city that they're closest to. So that's not really an option anyways. But I think the bigger point is, you know, I think saying something like, well, if I don't buy rice, then they won't be farming. Like, actually, that might mean that they you know, a, a, a village in this situation then lacks the income that they need to buy fertilizer for the next year. And there are just so many ways that you can unwittingly sort of perpetuate or have 
unintended consequences there. I think the question is more, how, again, as I said, the international community really investing and talking to people on the ground about what their lives are like and what would be feasible solutions and working it out with people. Again, this is this is hard. This takes time. This takes sort of sustained investment. You can't just start and then go into the cycle of neglect here, right? Um, but I think when you just sort of try to ship an out-of-the-box solution, um, those typically are not going to work as well as one that you work out with the community hand-in-hand. And you also point out how these uh, deforested areas are little patches, which lead Mm -hmm. to large amounts of edges, and on the edges is where people can have contact with animals. Anybody who's a deer hunter knows that you go to the edge of a mowed area and you look Mm. for the area where the deer will be eating the plants that are growing on the edges. That's something that's where you have contact with deer. Does Mm -hmm. deforestation need to be, because this seems kind of counterintuitive, does deforestation need to be more organized in order to have fewer edges where humans can become in contact with animals? Because bigger patches of deforestation, that doesn't sound good, but if the choice is a bigger patch or more or more small patches, I guess it makes sense. But I fear more deforestation with larger plots. So this is kind of counterintuitive. So if you could kind of draw me through this to explain why these bigger patches. I mean, I understand the edge part of it, but that just kind of is scary yeah, to me. It- it is it is counterintuitive, but really interesting. So I think that the the scientific theory here is if obviously if you let's let's talk about the extremes first. So if you have totally untouched forest, you know it is one continuous block of forest. Um, the the chances of wildlife interacting with humans who are not going into that untouched forest are going to be very low. The other end of the extreme is let's say we take the entire forest down. There's no more forest. Most likely, wildlife are just not going to survive that situation. Um, and so, again, the the risk of human wildlife contact that could start an outbreak again becomes very low. It's this intermediate level that scientists say can be the most risky. And one of the ways that they calculate this is the question of how much edge is being created with the presumption that these edges, these little patches that you've taken out are where humans are going, whether it's for farming, whether it's for logging. Um, there's there's human interaction there, and also that's the place where you might collide most with with wild animals. So the idea would be, if let's say we had a we had a forest, and I took a chunk out of the corner of it, you're not creating that much edge. If you took the same area away, but you did it in like a Swiss cheese format, you know, so the same number of trees have come down, but the pattern is now all these tiny little holes. You suddenly create a lot of edge. And so I don't think the what we're saying here is like, you know, deforest in larger patches. I think there's a question of can you manage if you do have to take down trees, a, a way to not increase the number of trees, but to do it in a fashion that you're not creating a Swiss cheese landscape that has a maximum amount of edge. Can you take what you need sort of from the ba- from the outside boundaries in one block? So Again, like this is a simplified model here, but I think what I what I what I feel is that you know scientists are working really hard to understand what types of deforestation can be the most risky, and that really should be part of the conversation. 
you also point towards the soil conditions and how they can deteriorate with uh, continued farming in deforested areas. You write that experts said that one way to improve the soil's fertility is to plant cover crops, which add nitrogen to the soil, are left to decay in the fields and slow soil erosion. Erica Steiger, a professor of tropical agronomy at Cornell University, said the villagers could divide the uh, fields into sections and rotate what's planted in each area, rice one year, cassava the next, then let that section rest with cover crops for several years. This, along with the targeted fertilizer application, could increase the organic matter in the soil and gradually triple or quadruple their yields compared with what they're harvesting now. But the key word there I was focusing on is gradually. What would that mean for the short term? Are the lives of the people of Meliandu and places like this so precarious that they cannot wait for any gradual change and are desperate for their community right now? Well, I would start by saying I think gradual change is better than no change, which is what they have right now is is no change. So I think that even uh, gradual introduction of um, fertilizers or higher yield seeds for the crops that they grow, better techniques, like all of those things cumulatively would be worth doing over time. Um, at the same time, you're right, they are desperate. I talked to the village chief and it just, it really struck me that as the world doesn't really want to think about the intersection of environment and health, this is on his mind all the time. You know, as he is sowing rice seed, he is acutely aware that excess crop that they have can be sold for medication. And he's told me how, you know, parents have sold whatever extra crop they have to be able to pay for medications for their children. And sometimes they just don't have the ability to do that. And he's seen people in the village die of things like appendicitis, um, or hernias because they just can't afford the healthcare. And so like this connection is so present and they know it and they also feel like they've been abandoned by the international community because everybody flew in to Meliandu when the Ebola outbreak started and then they all left, you know, as they had to go to other places where the outbreak had spread to and pe- people there feel like they've been left behind and they know that they are not prepared if another outbreak were to come, whatever it is, COVID-19, they aren't resourced and they can't really do anything about it themselves. You write that after the Ebola epidemic, Suri Moon, co-director of the Global Health Center at the Geneva Graduate Institute, helped lead one of the more influential studies of what needed to change to avoid another epidemic. The 2015 report focused on preparing for and responding to outbreaks, she said, because that was the expertise of the people in the room, including policy wonks, fluent in global crises, infectious disease epidemiologists, and a representative from Doctors Without Borders, the nonprofit that sent medical workers to the epicenter of the outbreak. Experts in agriculture, conservation, and ecology, those most attuned to the forces that drive spillover were not present, and they are largely excluded from conversations about how to spend pandemic prevention money. What explains why experts in, in agriculture, conservation, and ecology are excluded? And does that explain why deforestation is rarely considered as a contributor to contact with and spread of viruses? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is in some ways a, a weird self-perpetuating cycle where if you don't invite this type of expert into the room when you're doing your post-pandemic you know, debrief, which is what's happening right now with a lot of um, 
experts that are considering what happened, what went wrong with the COVID-19 pandemic, if you start from a place where all the people you're inviting are people who focus on response, so largely biomedical folks, and then you say, what should we do? They're going to focus on what they know. And then that drives the agenda so that the people who might be able to advise us on real prevention are not in the room and then not invited to the next conversation. So I think this is something that has been just sort of the way it's always been. Um, and it will take some conscious effort to say, hey, do we really want to address you know, primary prevention, stopping the spillover from happening in the first place? Then what are the biggest causes as we understand that? And then how can we get those experts into the room and have them be part of the conversation to help us set our priorities? And so far, it seems unfortunately that as we're talking about COVID-19, that a bit of the traditional method of doing this is sort of happening again. And you were talking about earlier about getting local input. You write, the world has produced more than 40 reports on what went wrong during the epidemic that began in Meliandu and how to avoid uh, similar disasters in the area. Yet a Ghanaian uh, farming expert said the authors of those reports never asked him for or his colleagues for advice. So is the problem a kind of lingering colonial mentality that locals are not being asked for their input on decision-making? And if they are not being asked, in your opinion, why not? Because it only makes sense you would ask locals. It seems like one of the parts of the process here is democracy and getting everybody's voice heard. Yeah, I don't don't exactly know the answer to that question. I do think that it is mostly a failure of imagination that we could do something to actually stop outbreaks from ever starting in the first place. Um, you know, partly we mentioned in our story that the WHO convened a panel of experts um, to sort of do a postmortem of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that same group has argued that we should not spend money on preventing spillover because it would be like, quote unquote, boiling the ocean. It's like too hard. It's too much money. We should focus our money on responding and having a fast response when an outbreak starts. So I think if you come in with that mindset in the first place, then you're not going to invite this type of expert. I do think that you know what I saw at least post Ebola is that experts from those countries, from from West Africa in particular, were invited to be part of the conversations. But again, it tended to be folks who are doctors, who are so the biomedical experts who focus on response. You also point out the experts convened by the World Health Organization are not wrong about the gargantuan effort it would take to reduce the chances of spillover worldwide. Some researchers have estimated that putting a dent in global deforestation alone would cost up to $9 billion a year. But they argue that the expense would be a drop in the bucket compared with the hundreds of billions of dollars in economic losses from outbreaks each year, not to mention the cost of lives lost. So this would seem like a very good investment for the bottom line. If you are some, someone who's only considered uh, concerning the uh, profits rather than the people, yep. this would make a lot of sense to do. And $9 million may be a lot of money. However, the U.S. spends at least $740 billion on the military in the last budget. In other words, the U.S. could pay for the program itself and still have $730 billion left for the military. So exactly how unaffordable is protecting us from another pandemic. Well, that's a really good point when you put those numbers side by side with each other, that's for sure. Um, I think the challenge though, again, is like, 
as you said, like, what's the priorities right now? Because actually that military number just boggles my mind because the World Bank and the WHO have estimated that we need about $10.5 billion annually for this pandemic preparedness fund um, that they've been created that's supposed to, you know, countries are supposed to chip in. And so this is $10.5 billion annually. So far they have raised um, close to $2 billion. $1.6 billion has been raised so far. So like the numbers, you know, I think the amount of funding that is actually, again, going into preparing for the next pandemic is really sadly short of what we need. And that's why everybody's squabbling over, should we spend it on prevention? Should we spend it on response? What's the thing that we should spend it on? It's because there's just so little money to go around. And I fear that we are already, actually already moving into the phase of neglect. It seems that way to me, too. Uh, so all of this, the situation that's happening in Miliandu, this would seem like they've been left as a kind of sacrifice zone for economic development, for globalization. This would seem to me like a perfect recipe for, you know, you talk about this one gentleman who says that they all they do is they just bury their dead now and they've, he's lost his wits about him, it seems. This would seem to me like a perfect recipe for violent extremism, seeking vengeance for loss, blowback from the government and international community abandoning Miliandu. Can and should fighting novel viruses by ending deforestation, can that be framed successfully as a security concern? And do you think that would have an effect on the public's opposition to deforestation? Now you're pushing me out of my realm of of expertise here as a health reporter. I mean, I don't. I frankly, the 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 overwhelming mood I got in Meliandu was one of sort of resignedness and and to some degree bitterness. You know, the it is so hard for people, particularly for parents, to know that if another outbreak is to hit your village, you're not prepared to face it. And the person you're refer- referencing, Etienne. He's the father of the the toddler who was the patient zero in 2013. Um, he lost two kids in uh, in eight days, and then his wife, who was his childhood sweetheart, um, who was pregnant, also died, and they lost that baby. And this all happened in rapid succession. Then he lost his mother in law, and that alone is enough to devastate anyone. Uh, But the knowledge that for his kids that remain, that if another outbreak were to hit his city, that he would just be helpless is is really uh, it it clearly weighs on him. And I think that that was sort of the overwhelming mood I got from the village is that this is, you know, we're not prepared. We know it. We're incredibly sad and disheartened by that. And nobody wants to help us. So is the U.S. and even the global community, is their policy, we will do everything necessary to stop the next outbreak of diseases that could become epidemic and pandemic, except stop deforestation? Is everything on the table in fighting the possibility of another pandemic except stopping deforestation? Is there bipartisan opposition to considering deforestation as a reason for the pandemic? I don't think there's opposition. I think they're just not even talking about it, frankly. I just think it hasn't even come up in discussion. Again, as we talked about earlier, how 
far back are we willing to look at the actual drivers behind outbreaks? We can debate all day about like what exactly happened in Wuhan. And it's, you know, obviously it would be important to understand that so we can learn from that. But I think the conversation hasn't even gone to, well, what are the major forces that are making outbreaks happen more frequently? Because they they are happening more frequently, for, according to scientists who track this. And so I don't think there's there's opposition. I think there's just a lack of conversation. Which is almost worse. It's yeah, complete... like I would I would rather people to be debating it because then at least they'd be talking about it. Exactly. And as has been pointed out so many times, uh, one time on CNN by Chris Saliza, if the two political parties agree on something, then it's not worthy of coverage. So at one point when they were both in a level of denialism about climate change, there was very little discussion about climate change. And then once the Democratic Party started deciding that they should be more opposed to climate change, that's when it became a story. And that's the difficult part, that when it is something that neither party is discussing, it doesn't get into the news. Caroline, I I have one last question for you. Caroline Chen, this has been an absolute pleasure. And when your new article comes out, I'm going to make sure that we are sharing it online because I'm really looking forward to it. Caroline is the lead reporter for the ProPublica series On the Edge, the next deadly pandemic is just a forest clearing away, but we're not even trying to prevent it. So our final question, Caroline, is, and we do this with everybody, is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience okay. might, might hate your response. How much, this is where we started, and I apologize for forcing this question kind of back onto you again. Mm-hmm. How much is our refusal to in any way critique globalization dooming us to the next pandemic? Wow. Um, I think I think it is a matter of not accepting reality. You know, I don't know that the right word there is critiquing. I think that we're not looking it in the face and accepting that there may be bad consequences as well as good consequences and having real discussions about what that means. Um, and I think that if we don't seriously take the underlying causes of spillover, then, then we are dooming ourselves, I'm afraid. I mean, that, that sounds very dire. But I go back to you know a scientist that we talked to. We showed her our findings from the modeling work we did. And she said, even though we know the fundamental drivers of these outbreaks, we have effectively done nothing to stop the ignition of a future outbreak. So is that enough doom for you? Yeah, that's a pretty hellish <laughs> answer. And, you know, one thing that you were just mentioning, considering the consequences, that's something, I mean, we can date it back on our show to covering the battle for Seattle in 1999 at the World Trade Organization ministerial meetings when there were people from labor. There were people who were environmentalists who wanted to be at the table because they were considering the consequences of what globalization and their version of free trade could be. But they were not invited to that table and not considering the consequences, the possible negative consequences of something that could be really good for all of humanity is always a huge mistake. And Caroline, I cannot thank you again enough for being on our show. I truly appreciate it. You can follow Caroline on Twitter at Caroline Y.L. Chen, and you should, so you will get tipped off to the next time, next article being produced. And join her on Mastodon at Caroline Chen at Mastodon.social. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having me. Take care. 
live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. If what you just heard from Caroline Chen on the next pandemic and why we're doing nothing to prevent it, if that made you feel like you actually learned something or that you realized, yeah, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast with streams live Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell. So you don't have to listen to, lo- listen to it live. You can listen to it at your convenience. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Well, this week's question from hell is, what are you giving up for Lent? And over at Facebook, Pete V simply answers hope. <laughs> it's giving up hope. Yeah. In stark contrast, Bogey G answers that he's uh, going to give up answering questions from This Is Hell. <laughs> A couple wise guys starting yeah. out here. Yeah. And then we got Aaron D. Says he's going to give up matzo ball soup and corned beef. David Z. Says he's going to give up my anal bum cover, which I don't, I don't know what that is. is. Kind of gives me a queasy feeling. Yeah, it sounds like a tea cozy kind I of thing. I guess so. We got this joker, Rob Hurley, who says this is hell should give up existing. It's so much easier than sitting around accomplishing next to nothing, you know, beyond mocking other people pretending to be creative. It's not creative at all. Just one dude's opinion. So I love that answer because there are so many problems there. Uh, He's deflecting, first of all. What Uh was the question from hell? What are you giving up for Lent? Yeah. And then he's telling us what we should give up for Lent. That was not (laughs) our question from hell. And if this show was just one person's opinion... Can you explain, I don't know, Jeff Dorchin's opinion, Sebastian Vupper's yeah. opinion, Lindsey Gorey's opinion, your Mostly opinion? Mostly other guests' opinions. Exactly. You know, so I, the thousands of guests we've had on the show. Yeah. So, yeah. He's a dyed-in-the-wool dude. I you know, checked his little page. It's all football and MAGA. Like, uh, <laughs> he sincerely dislikes our program of information well, and analysis. Thank you for listening, Rob. <laughs> How did he find out? That's fantastic. I really love when people who completely disagree with us listen to the show, and then all of a sudden they listen to one of the guests, and they're like, oh, wait a second. We sh- yeah. yeah, that might be right. We should uh, we should choose him as the winner. Get a little this is Hellcap mm. on his head. No, that would be great. He probably agrees just for scarier reasons. Yeah, because I mean it's easy <laughs> it's easy to preach to the choir, but we like what we like to do here on This Is Hell is take the choir out back and get him high. There you go. <laughs> I'll bet he'd be down. Well, Kim G comes to our rescue saying, "I'll give up sitting around and mocking people pretending to be creative again." <laughs> okay. Uh, Carlos C answers uh, reading E from erotic or E is for erotica to my partner. Which is a- I met uh, Carlos at last week's uh, This Is Hell office yeah. hours, and it was absolutely awesome. What would you say is the percentage of E is for eroticas that we've given out? What, what's what's the pile? Oh, uh, I think days? we are still. <laughs> it's hard to we, put it. We got 150 yeah. copies, so I think we're about halfway through, maybe. So the next 75 people I see, I'll be giving it out. Not bad. Wojciech R answers MySpace. He's giving up MySpace for Lent. Is that still going? No. Uh, and then we had a uh, yesterday's guest, Dan K, is also giving up hope, <laughs> not unlike Pete V. Uh, John K is giving giving up Lutefisk, uh, like, covered dish. Yeah, do you actually? Who eats Lutefisk in general? You only eat it the holidays, and it's only because you have to. It's I'll eat Lutefisk if it's around. It's just fish soaking in lye for yeah, months. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's heady stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, we had a couple new ones. Uh, oh, Riley J says, and this is probably the best one, trying to figure out this Cy Hirsch controversy. <laughs> like all of us. Yeah. Over at Patreon, there's a new one. Peter J says, went. And then there's this dude, Little Drippy DDS. <laughs> and he's giving up condoms, and he's just going to roll with the vasectomy. And I'm like... Is that a coincidence that a dude calling himself Lil Drippy is giving up condoms? You know, they they safeguard against you know more than just pregnancy Drippy. Yeah, and isn't it DDS? Isn't that a dentist? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I'm very concerned about the whole thing. We we get some weirdos listening to this show. Who knew? Uh, finally, we got on Twitter. We got Daniel R is giving up sex. Jamie K is giving up guilt. Good luck. Rock Taster is giving up Alaska. Russia can have it back. And finally, Carlos Marx is just gonna <laughs> give up. By the way, yeah. great handle. Yeah. Carlos definitely. Marx, I like that's that. absolutely it's with fantastic. Three X's, <laughs> Which too. makes Carlos it even better. Marx. See, and it adds that E is for erotica. Thing. Totally. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which we will be announcing following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, will get whatever piece of This Is Hell swag you want. Just go to thisishell.com. Click on support and see what all of our pieces of merchandise are. Speaking of Jeff Dorchin, the moment of truth. Dan, what is Jeff doing this week on the moment of truth? Well, this week, Jeff is going to advocate for the condemned. And we're all very happy about that. Mm -hmm. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you get to listen to our weekly Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons. On this week's Patreon, the term cognitive dissonance has been coming up a lot here on This Is Hell. That is, by definition, the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. Or more simply, our beliefs do not match our actions. And that keeps coming up, not only on the show... Like this week with Liz Theo Harris and her pointing to the wealthiest nation in the history of the world having a poverty and homelessness crisis. And with home builder Dan Colbert, who recognizes that building new homes is not good for the environment or if we want to do anything about climate change. But it also comes up in our everyday lived experience as we literally step over or walk by the suffering we are increasingly seeing on the streets. So this week on Patreon, it's our individual and collective cognitive dissonance and how, in Liz's words... That leads to spiritual death. Also on Patreon, we're continuing our three-part series in recognition of the one-year anniversary of the war on Ukraine by playing interviews where guests essentially predicted the war here on This Is Hell, dating back to the mid-2000s. This week, we're playing our conversation with defense analyst Ivan Eland, who back in 2008 had just written the story Mixed Truth of the Russia-Georgia War, which gives some of the origin story for the current war in Ukraine. And keep in mind, when listening to that interview, Ivan eventually turned to complete support for the Ukrainian military and a war against Ukraine. But the only way you can hear me uh, discuss cognitive dissonance and here another one in the part our three-part series on the origins of the Ukraine war is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you do become a subscriber, you get a special secret code word to get $5 off of each piece of our merchandise, as well as access to 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's patreon.com slash this is hell coming up. 
Jeff Dorchin with the Moment of Truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell live from Hangover Country. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Condemnation Nation. I wept no bitter tears when Scott Adams's Dilbert cartoon was dropped from the Cleveland Plain Dealer after he posted a video wherein he declared, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the away. Wherever you have to go, just get away because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. So I don't think it makes any sense as a white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. There's no longer a rational impulse. So I'm going to back off on being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. My non-existent tears remained unembittered when several other papers followed the plain dealer's lead, even though I know we will all miss Scott's noble contributions to the black equality discussion and his substantial aid to black communities. Even though I feel like we've lost Paul Robeson, Fred Hampton, and Muhammad Ali all over again. But then I realized Scott wouldn't have wanted me to feel any such loss anyway. He isn't about feelings. He's about offices and data and demonically elitist dogs and computer chairs. I come not only to condemn Scott Adams, creator of Dilbert, but to bury him. We are a nation of schadenfreude. That's the kind of audience we are. Whether a when a bigot or big shot gets taken down as Andrew Tate was in Romania, the audience laughs and cheers. Tate's case is especially funny because the cause of his downfall was his own preening ego, which led to his unprovoked reactionary attack on a teenage climate activist. I mean, there's not much funnier than Tate being grabbed for sex trafficking by Romanian law enforcement tipped off to his presence in the country by his braggadocious video with a locally branded pizza box in the camera frame. Unless it's Greta Thunberg's parting words to seal the flame war, this is what happens when you don't recycle your pizza boxes. The bully was an obvious bully, the victim refused to be a victim, and in the end, the good guy won in a way that was highly amusing and poetically just. However, when good guys and bad guys are not so easily distinguishable, but a clear-cut distinction is imposed on the conflict anyway, the amusement transforms from enjoyable schadenfreude through the chrysalis of questionable hostility to emerge as indefensible hate-mongering. And I don't like that, because it leads to unfair condemnation, and most of us tend to have sympathy for the unfairly condemned, regardless of their crimes. I loved mocking Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, while newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune on Monday, were dropping the comic strip like a hot Manhattan Project demon core. The shunning was in response to his inarguably racist public remarks. Despite myriad such examples of villainous, mustache-twirling behavior, especially from the right these days, there are times even currently when things just aren't that simple, and that is tragic, because then they aren't as funny. We all know the best way to ruin a joke is to explain it. 
Too much dissection of a premise throws a wet blanket on humor. Brevity is the soul of wit, and brevity is best expressed with the economy of the verbiage. But certain social phenomena require examination, discussion, nuance, details, finding dots and connecting them, and even a willingness to entertain that arguments from the other side, assuming there is at least one other side, are plausible. How can we tell whether an argument or a person is worthy of being shunned or must be given a certain amount of respectful consideration? I'm not sure I know the answer. In fact, I'm sure I don't know the answer. I'm still examining, discussing, trying to be sensitive to nuance, groping for details, and searching for all the dots with a view to connecting them in this regard, and I often fail. However, it should be apparent that condemnation has become the new national pastime. There are entire cable infotainment channels devoted to it with varying standards of fairness and accuracy. We can forgive these public nuisances their immoral, shoddy methodology because we've lived under capitalism all our lives. We're acclimated to lies as a form of communication and understand the purpose of these outlets is not to inform honestly, but to make money. We are less forgiving when we encounter individuals who have evidently been pilled one way or another by these coleslaw brain marionettes. We think, how can you believe that? How can you perpetuate that? How can you even understand how to breathe when your soul can assimilate such so toxic succotash? Do you even have a soul? I've been emailed or told in person many, like more than six, horror stories from friends in academia or other areas wherein people fear for their jobs. Yes, they are all men and all but one of them is white. None of them is disabled. They are all but one pretty financially precarious though. And while none of my female academic friends has expressed such immediate fears, they do back up the men's experiences of having to navigate a minefield of often unspoken rules and to cater to certain demands they find excessive, if mostly manageable. I've also been in progressive groups and found myself under pressure to adhere to an in-group etiquette at the risk of being psychologized, shunned, or publicly humiliated. I want to believe all victims, but not all victims are honest, despite the risks they might take simply for speaking out. Further, in a room full of victims, there is often pressure to honor the one who makes the case for representing a social identity that's the most victimized, systemically and experientially. I'm for the triumph of victims over their oppressors, but the victim competition, I condemn it. I'm over it. I like to think that if I were in a group exploring alternatives to the unfair constructs we and those more vulnerable than us must endure, we would be tolerant and fair to a Scott Adams or an Andrew Tate until they had proven themselves to be intolerable beyond a reasonable doubt. I like to think I would demand fairness and tolerance for others in the group, but that we would come to something like a consensus once the Rubicon of insensitivity and dehumanization had been crossed. Then, and only then, would we condemn. That's what I'd like to think about the company I keep. Let's avoid making martyrs of our enemies. They're good enough at declaring their own martyrdom based on the crazy lies they invent. Let's not help them. 
It should be easy to see here that this is not a blanket condemnation of condemnation. I love condemnation. Who am I to speak out against the national pastime? And I trust that overreach and exaggeration, unwarranted castigation and stigmatizing from the left is far less frequent or destructive or systemic than that constantly hailing down from the rulers and their tools on the right. Even though it comes from a place of defending our allies and our siblings and our comrades and our principles, I want us to be more forgiving than those who fuel the engine of global and human destruction, just not tolerant or forgiving to a fault. And that's how it is with the majority of true activists among you. With all an oppressive economy can throw at us, I see most progressives, leftists, left liberals, socialists, et al., at least outside the confines of Twitter and the podcast judgment machine and cable infotainment, being brilliantly constructive at best, and at worst, at least taking care to minimize harm to the vulnerable. As fractious and obnoxious as our fellow travelers may often be, we are a credit to the tradition of holding the powerful accountable when we are careful to be at our best. Condemnation is only one tool for chipping away at the hegemony of the greedy, powerful, and violent. It can also be fun and educational. Let us honor it and participate in it as such. Down with the bastards who would dare to keep us down. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. And for everybody's protection, I believe that we should all be part of condemnation. We should, always. I like condominiums, too. I think we should all live in them. Yeah, but they're um, really kind of greasy and kind of gross. So, so I never, uh, I didn't give my, uh, what I'm, what I'm giving up for Lent, my answer to the question from hell this week. So I'd like to give, uh, give, and I think this should be maybe the question from hell for next week. What, although that's probably overdoing it, uh, what should Rob Hurley give up for Lent? <laughs> and I think that is like commenting and stewing and, uh, brewing up frustration about things he doesn't understand, doesn't really care about, and uh, doesn't care to investigate. So uh, that's my answer that's to answer. the question of how, <laughs> question from hell whenever it actually comes to that. So Jeffy, until yep. next time. What should I do? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more responses? This week's question from Hell is, what are you giving up for Lent? We have two responses in under the wire. We got Justin M. answering Catholicism, of course, <laughs> and Ronaldo Magaldi, our own Ronaldo M., answering, I am not giving up pasta fazool, so don't even suggest it. <laughs> so the answers I liked the most were, and I... Don't get me wrong. I do want to send uh, some sort of gift to Rob Hurley or at least to say to him in a response, hey, you're the winner of this week's question from hell. What piece of merchandise do you want? Just to provoke and poke the bear to see how he would react. But the answers I actually like the most were on Patreon. Margaret saying the ship. Craig saying the ghost. Lorian saying Lent. Peter Jones saying Lent with a question mark. James Jamie K saying guilt. Eat Fart 69 saying the F word. Carlos Marx saying, I'm just going to give up. Riley J saying, trying to figure out the whole Cy Hirsch controversy. John K saying, Ludafisk. 
Dan saying hope, Pete saying hope, Ray saying all hope, Brianna K saying my hopes and dreams for the future, Carlos saying e is for reading e is for erotica for my partner, Cynthia saying Lent Schment, who cares, Derek B saying my amateur ballooning hobby, Lisa MP saying religion. Do you have any that's your favorite? Because there's one I haven't mentioned yet that I think is this week's winner. I mean, I like Riley J with the Cy Hirsch thing, but you're the boss. What do you like? Judy saying, so many possibilities. Booze? Don't drink enough to make it a worthy sacrifice. Sex? Something's got to hold the marriage together after 44 years. Sugar? You're kidding. Potatoes? They're a diet staple. Weed? Can't be done. Consumerism? Stepped away from that decades ago, so I'm going to give more money and time away where the world needs it. Oh, right. That's what God wanted to begin with. So, I think that that's the best answer to the question from hell, unless you think it is. Oh, very solid. My full blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Judy, you are this week's winner, and we will be uh, posting a message responding to you on Facebook, asking you for your mailing address, as well as the piece of merchandise that you would like, that you can all find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. My answer to this week's question from hell, I am going to do everything I can this Lent to give up the five-day work week. Even if it means 12-hour work days and still doing some show-related work on the fifth day, I'm going to do my damnedest to have a four-day work week so I could do anything I want the other three days of the week. Even if I want to do what I want to do is work on the radio show. So I'm hopefully giving up the five-day work week. Wish me luck. Thanks to everybody for responding to this week's question from Hell. Dan, who is our next guest coming up next week on This Is Hell? I know this much. We're going to have Jasper Craven, who wrote the Baffler article, The Sunshine Imperium, the Militarism of Ron DeSantis. Jasper is a freelance reporter covering the military and veterans' issues. His writings appeared in The Intercept, The New the New Republic, New York Magazine, and The New York Times. So thanks to everybody this week's producer, everybody for listening, first of all. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to all of you for sharing shows on social media. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Will Ippen for joining us in studio and being trained as our newest producer. Thanks to Jeff for the moment of truth. Ronaldo for This Week in Rotten History, Sebastian for another Past Inside the Present, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander, Jerry, and Theron Humiston, Just Because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon Thursday uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be staring into the abyss of cognitive dissonance under capitalism and we continue our three-part series on the origins of, no, not COVID, but another of the plagues that has been beset upon us of late to the war in Ukraine. Hang out with me. Members of the This Is Hell crew and other This Is Hell listeners for Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time, beginning around 6 and going until at least 10 p.m. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I'll give you a free book, likely E is for erotica. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening starting around 6 and running till about 10 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>